When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. On today's episode of Deconstructed, we're going to be talking with Dorothy Brown, author of the new book, The Whiteness of Wealth, on the history of race, inequality, and the tax code. The fight over the tax code is one of the main sticking points in the negotiations going on now between Republicans and Democrats over the infrastructure package. Before the Senate gets to a deal, though, the question of the filibuster is coming to a head. In 10 years, if Democrats are permanently locked out of congressional power, with elections only held to determine the size of the Republican majority, historians will be able to look back at June 2021 as the month they let it slip away. Or, if they've averted that fate, this month could be why. At a press conference earlier this week, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer laid out the month's agenda. While he cited a number of specific priorities, it's not hard to read between the lines and see that it's the filibuster that is truly on the calendar. We have seen the limits of bipartisanship and the resurgence of Republican obstructionism. He cited obstruction of a tech funding bill that had bipartisan support yet still ran into McConnell's buzzsaw. He mentioned the January 6th commission, filibustered by Republicans. Senate Republicans, at the personal request of Leader McConnell, continue their brazen attempts to whitewash the attack of January 6th by filibustering the House passed bipartisan January 6th commission. Schumer then made the obligatory homage to bipartisanship, setting himself up as the one willing to work in good faith while Republicans do nothing but obstruct. Senate Democrats are doing everything we can to move bipartisan legislation where the opportunity exists. But we will not wait for months and months to pass meaningful legislation that delivers real results for the American people. So looking ahead, when the Senate reconvenes on June 7th, we'll force a vote on H.R. 7, H.R. 7 is the Paycheck Fairness Act, which Republicans had blocked during Obama's second term. Schumer also plans to have a vote on the nomination of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson to the D.C. Court of Appeals. Gun safety and LGBTQ equality legislation would also likely be on the schedule. In other words, lots of things Republicans will filibuster. And finally, in the last week of the June work period, the week of June 21st, the Senate will vote on S-1, the For the People Act, legislation vital, vital to defending our democracy. The For the People Act, as we talked about in our episode back in February, would ban gerrymandering and override the voter suppression laws that Republicans are pushing at the state level. And experts say it needs to be passed now to go into effect before the midterms. They can't wait any longer. So as the president continues to discuss infrastructure legislation with Senate Republicans, our committees are going to hold hearings and continue their work on Build Back Better with or without the uh, support of Republican senators. The American people gave us a Democratic Senate to produce big and bold change on the major issues confronting us, and that is what we are doing. Joe Biden zeroed in on June in a speech Tuesday evening in Tulsa. June should be a month of action on Capitol Hill. Earlier this year, the House of Representatives passed 
for the People Act to protect our democracy. The Senate will take it up later this month, and I'm going to fight like heck with every tool at my disposal for its passage. The House is also working on the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which is, which is critical to providing new legal tools to combat the new assault on the right to vote. But it's going to take a hell of a lot of work. Of course, the plan Biden's laying out there is easier said than done. But this has been the strategy Schumer has telegraphed from the beginning. Get what he can get through reconciliation, then start ramming popular items against the wall of the filibuster in the hopes that Manchin will join in knocking it over. Ending the filibuster was always going to be a multi-stage process. Adam Gentleson, author of the book Kill Switch on the history of the filibuster, joined us back in February and talked about it unfolding in multiple acts. By late spring, early summer, you're going to have a pile of must-pass legislation that's not going anywhere. Senators are going to face a choice between reforming the rules and giving up, essentially, on the Biden administration, you know, a few months in. Act One was getting filibuster reform on the agenda and getting most of the Democratic caucus behind it. That happened early on, with even Joe Manchin agreeing that the silent filibuster needed to end and perhaps should be replaced by a talking filibuster. He backtracked under pressure, but that's all part of Act One. Act Two is demonstrating to the public and to people like Manchin that the possibility of bipartisan cooperation with the Republicans has left the building. That's what June is about. And Joe Biden specifically called out Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema for blocking his agenda. I hear all the folks on TV saying, why doesn't Biden get this done? Well, because Biden only has a majority of effectively four votes in the House and a tie in the Senate with two members of the Senate who vote more with my Republican friends. The contrast with Obama couldn't be sharper. In 2009, when progressive groups pressured Blue Dog Democrats to back Obama's agenda, Rahm Emanuel ordered them to stop, called them effing R-words, and went after their funding. Now Biden is going after wavering Democrats himself. Congress returns from recess next week, and the fight will begin on the Senate floor. The talks over infrastructure and the tax code will continue in the background. And one book some Democrats in Congress have been reading is the one by Dorothy Brown. She's the Asa Griggs Candler Professor of Law at Emory University and the author of The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. Dorothy Brown joins us now. Dorothy, welcome to Deconstructed. Thanks so much for having me. No, thank you for for being here. The book is fascinating, thought-provoking, and I think among a lot of people, anger-inducing too. They they have a hard time um, processing what they're reading or what they're hearing about this book. I'm curious, what has been the reaction so far from people that you've spoken to about this? And you've been doing this research for, for a long time. And I'm also curious, is there, do you get a different reaction from black audiences yes. relative to white audiences? Hands down, yes. <laughs> Hands down, yes. How, how so? What's typically the, start with the white reaction. What's, what's typically the, the white audience response? So first I'll say I've been doing this research for 25 years, mm-hmm. and it's only within the last several months that white reporters have been interested in talking to me about race and tax. So let's start there. It was, mm-hmm. it was after the summer of 2020 when people saw the George Floyd murder and started mm-hmm. thinking, I wonder what else I'm not seeing. That's when the call started coming. So I would try to pitch race and tax stories to white reporters and they were having none of it. Right. And when you talk about white reporters and you talk about the 
particularly the tax press. I mean, you're basically talking about the entire yes. tax press corps, right? Right. Every, all of them. Right. <laughs> all of them, right? With very limited exceptions. So Jillian White at um, The Atlantic would call mm-hmm. me up and get quotes. She's an African-American woman. So there were re- rare exceptions. Aaron Haynes at the time was at the AP. She would call me up and get quotes. So black reporters found me, but the mainstream tax reporters, which are typically white and male, they would never respond to pitches or anything that I was talking about. And I don't want to throw it on into too much of a tangent, but that's that's really interesting that that you bring that up because like the tax press corps in general, has made the argument that, yes, diversity is a good thing. You know, all industries ought to be diverse. We ought to be diverse. That's a nice thing in and of itself. But it's actually not necessary for the quality of the work that we're producing as a kind of tax-focused press corps because these are just numbers. You know, we're just crunching the numbers and we're telling you what the answers are. We're telling you, you know, we're we're just telling you basic black and white facts. (laughs) Uh, So it doesn't really matter who's writing them. What you just said and and your book itself kind of expose that as not quite true. That's right. It's it's definitely not true. And the notion that taxes are neutral and objective mm-hmm. is something I've been fighting in the academy as well as in the press corps. So if you don't have a lived experience of dealing with systemic racism, you don't know what you don't know. So most of the tax reporters don't know what they don't know, and were often hostile when they heard it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the reaction is, oh, no, Dorothy, it's not race, it's class. Mm-hmm. And what I've had to do is explain to them that this impacts Black Americans at all income levels, proving it isn't class but race. Right. And so so that's often the main response you get from white audiences. Um, yes. So what yes. about black audiences? Black audiences are always like, tell me more, tell me more, tell mm-hmm. me more. I, I would get, oh my gosh, I knew something was wrong. I didn't know what. So there's an embracing that I would get when I would speak to black audiences. But I would also say When I spoke to lay audiences, non-academic audiences, regardless of race, I got profound support to the point Mm -hmm. of somebody once said, you should run for office. And I'm like, stop it. So the, the public was hungry for it. And it's what led me to think I could do a trade publication and I didn't have to do an academic press, right? So Mm -hmm. when I spoke to the public, they were hungry for more, and it transcended race. Right. And I think there'll probably be a lot of people listening to this who their first reaction will will have been the same thing. Well, no, it's probably it's probably more class than it than it is race. And I think one thing that might help it click for people is is the home ownership component that that you write about. Yes. You know, the schools, for instance, are funded by property yes. taxes. But the size of property taxes, of course, depends on home values. Right. But in turn, home values, even today, depend on, to a significant degree, the size of the black population in a neighborhood. You write about how once a neighborhood gets beyond 10% 
black population. Home values either start going down or start rising at a significantly lower rate, which means that as a direct result of racism, these neighborhoods are going to have worse schools, they're going to have worse services, and the the people in them are going to be able to grow wealth much slower than in a different neighborhood. Absolutely. Did I get that right? And if so, like, what can be done about that? So it's even worse than you Mm -hmm. describe when we talk about property taxes and, and schools, that what we see is in the white neighborhoods, they're able to raise significant revenue with low tax rates because the base Mm -hmm. is so wide, it's so large, it's so valuable. In Black and Latino communities, what we see are the base is really narrow, but the tax rates are very high. Parents are willing to tax themselves a lot to provide better schools, but because the valuation is so low, it's underfunded. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the easy solution is to stop funding schools by based on property taxes. It's either the state does a statewide valuation, right, and pays statewide pays for it, not based on the zip code you live mm-hmm. in, but a determination of this is the kind of education we want all of our students to get, and we will make sure to pay for it, right? right? That's the easy fix, and that's the one that's politically impossible. <laughs> right, right. Although, as you write about, bizarrely, you know, Trump actually yes. moved us closer to that. Can yes. you explain to people who might be confused about how that could be possible? <laughs> what is Professor Brown saying that's pro-Trump? What she's saying is, so what the Trump tax cuts did was significantly expand the standard deduction, which means you don't have to itemize. You can deduct a lot from your taxes mm-hmm. because for, for decades, the standard deduction amount only changed nominally. So what the Trump tax cuts did was increase them dramatically, which now means, you know, previously a third of taxpayers itemized. Mm -hmm. Now about 10% itemize, meaning 90% of us don't Mm -hmm. care what is in, what deductions exist. So now might be an opportune time to get rid of itemized deductions. Right. And so- the Trump administration kind of pushing forward what is a racial justice goal in a way. Nah. I think really nah. goes to well <laughs> nah. so it it goes to this question that, that you say you hear so much from yes. white people, which is, well, what was the intent? Is there a racist intent right. uh, to the to the tax code? I want to unpack that question for a moment first. I want to get your reaction to it. You know, to me, it's kind of fascinating and also revealing that it that it's so often the first thing that you hear. Yes. Because it reveals what so many white people are truly concerned about. You know, they're, <laughs> they're, they're like biggest fear. Their biggest concern is being called racist. Yes. You know, and part of that means you seek out and you condemn instances of explicit racism wherever you can find them. Right. But when you step back from it, like the biggest concern people should have from your research is what it found. Right. You know, in other words, you know, millions of real people are being disadvantaged by the tax code and the first priority ought to be figuring out exactly how it's happening. Second priority should be to figure out how to stop it from happening. Once you've done that, then okay, you can go back and and begin the hunt for the racist lawmakers who wrote the tax code. But that's kind of beside the point in a way. Yes. How do, how do you respond to that question when people immediately go to 
well, was the goal of the tax code to be racist? Yeah, great question. I get it all the time. And I start by saying, yes, I get this question a lot. And I don't make a judgment as to whether or not the legislators were racist because it's really mm -hmm. irrelevant to the impact. I don't hurt any less if someone was well-intentioned but still created a tax system that discriminates against me. Mm -hmm. It feels the same whether you target me because I'm black or it's just stuff happens because I'm right. black. Mm -hmm. I'm still black and I'm still harmed. And that's what I want to talk about. So I think the first few times, remember, I've been doing this for 20 something years. Mm -hmm. The first few times I think I engaged and I learned, no, 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 no. If you start talking about intent, you will never get to the problem mm -hmm. because it's this layer upon layer upon layer where we're talking about white people's intentions and not the harm being pe perpetrated on black Americans. Right. It's almost as if, if you can go back and show that the intentions were benign, then you don't have to look anymore at the malign result. We didn't mean for it to unfold this way. It's unfortunate that it did. Now let's just move on. But my take on it, and as somebody who's been looking at this for more than 20 years, is more along the lines of this, that if you take as a given that racism is kind of a central thing in the United States, mm -hmm. then policies that advantage white people relative to black people will be easier to pass in the aggregate over the long mm -hmm. run. Policies mm -hmm. that advantage black people over white people will be much harder to pass. Harder, yes. And that doesn't mean that people are sitting around and writing the laws for those purposes, but it means like in the aggregate, you're going to elect politicians who are eventually going to enact over time laws that advantage white people because there are more white people. And particularly when it comes mm -hmm. to white wealthy donors, mm -hmm. you know, there are many, many, many more of those. And so the system just ends up producing that result, whether you want to say it was designed specifically by racist people or not. Yeah. Once I started delving into these policies, so for example, the tax treatment on home sales dates back to 1951. In 1951, it was the first time white Americans, the majority of white Americans became homeowners, and suddenly we get this bill mm -hmm. that gives them a tax break when they sell their homes. But in 1951, you had the federal government with policies discriminating against black homeowners. Mm -hmm. It's happening at the same time. So it's hard for me to think those were coincidental. Mm -hmm. In 1951, black people didn't have equal rights. We didn't even have Brown v. Board of Ed. So the, the thought that some white lawmakers would think Black Americans were second-class citizens and therefore have that mindset when they created the law isn't that much of a stretch. See, most people don't realize our 2021 tax laws date back decades. Mm -hmm. it, it's not recent. It's, you know, 1913, 1948 when we had the joint return, 1951, when we had the first exception for a home sale. So once you pull the history thread, you start to go, wait a minute, they may not have said anything, mm -hmm. but we know what they were thinking. They, we know who they were creating the benefits for from a race perspective. A similar thing kind of flows out of the marriage penalty yes. question. Yes, yes. 
at the time that it was enacted, as you write, very few black taxpayers even existed. Very few white taxpayers existed. You know, the, the income taxes yes. for the very top. And I want to get you to tell this this story of how it comes about. But you you wind up effectively with some lower income families who have roughly the same earnings paying a penalty to get married. And so that may not have been designed to target black Americans. It may have been. But if it disproportionately impacted white ones, you can imagine that we would have fixed it by now. Yes. Uh, Speaking of the Trump tax cuts. (laughs) Right. Right. So how did this marriage penalty come about, which is a case of class and race? So, you know, poorer and lower middle class people of all races pay this penalty. How did we wind up in this situation? So it started with the joint return. The minute we made our tax bill dependent upon whether we were married or single and that it would change depending upon whether we were married or single, we set in motion a chain of events that ultimately became the marriage penalty. So we have this couple, the Seaborns, Charlotte and Henry Seaborn, who go all the way to the Supreme Court so they can get their marriage bonus, so they can get a tax cut. Mm -hmm. And we have Congress ultimately making that the law for everybody. If you're married and you have a single wage earner and the other spouse is a stay-at-home spouse, you get a tax cut. That's what we got in 1948. (laughs) There were no marriage penalties, but there were marriage bonuses. And even in 1948, you could have predicted this would impact white Americans more than black Americans because white women in 1948 were rarely working outside of the home. Black women, Mm -hmm. on the other hand, have always worked outside of the home, including black wives. So back in 1948, this marriage bonus was disproportionately benefiting white couples, not black couples. So it's one thing Mm -hmm. to not get a tax cut. That's bad. It's another thing that when you get married, you pay higher taxes. And that's what happened Mm -hmm. as a result of the 1969 Tax Reform Act. Well, who complained about... Henry and Charlotte getting a tax return, single Henrys. Single men with the same income as Henry paid higher taxes because they didn't have a wife. So they went to Congress and they complained and Congress fixed it by minimizing, but not eliminating the marriage bonus, but for the first time ever created a marriage penalty. So for the single Henrys to not pay so much in taxes, Couples like my parents wound up paying more. Why? Because their incomes were roughly equal. And what I showed in my research is whether it's low income, middle income, or high income, Black Americans are more likely to have equal co-earners as spouses, but not white Americans. White Americans, we saw, or I saw, were more likely to have equal earners in the middle class category. But in the high income, oh no, they were single wage earner couples. So they were getting a, the richest white Americans that were married were getting a tax cut. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You also talk about college. Yes. A lot, you know, a lot of different aspects of college. But let's talk about the student debt piece of it. You write, which might surprise people who might think that this is only a class issue, that even wealthy black students wind up with higher student debt than wealthy white yes. students. What's, yeah, what is, what's that what is going on? Brian says, right. what is going, what's going on? on here? And what's going on is wealthy black Americans have their wealth differently than wealthy white Americans. Wealthy white Americans have more of their wealth in the stock market, less of it in their homes. Wealthy Black Americans mm -hmm. have a lot of their wealth in their homes, wait for it, with much less equity because they live in racially diverse mm -hmm. or all-Black neighborhoods. So their wealth is not liquid and cannot be used as easily to benefit their children. So even Black students or Black children of wealthy Black Americans wind up in higher debt situations than their white peers, whose wealth protects them from college debt. And I'm curious if there's data on something that I've observed personally in my own kind of social circle as I, I grew up pretty poor, mm -hmm. but I now live in a very nice neighborhood. Yes. And I'm surrounded by people who are doing quite well. And one thing I've learned that I didn't realize before is that it's not just the parents that help these people out, but it's the, grand, <laughs> it's the grandparents too. Yes. I always knew yes, like, oh, yes, nice to have yes. rich parents who can pick up this or that. But it turns out like a lot of the people who I know whose kids are going to private school, like how do you swing $30,000 a year? Oh, their grandparents pay for it. Absolutely. Is there data on that? Yes. Because, and so that goes back to the legacy of racism. Yes. Because even if the parents of a black child are wealthy, the chance that their parents are also rich is vanishingly small. Yes, absolutely. So there's research on what's referred to as family financial transfers. And what you find are mm -hmm. black college graduates are more likely to send money home to their parents and grandparents than white college mm -hmm. graduates who are more likely to get money from their parents and grandparents. And there's research that shows that even black college graduates who get good paying jobs are not the same as their white peers. They start off with higher debt. They don't have grandma and grandpa to give them a down payment for a home. They don't have mm -hmm. that family wealth to pay for their kids to go to private school. So black college graduates, if they're lucky enough to get a good paying job, they're sending money home. They're taking care of siblings who might be about to be evicted. They're doing all kinds of things with their money, let me just point out, that is not tax deductible. 
But those gifts that their white peers are getting, tax-free. Right. It reminds me of that famous study of the Monopoly players. I'm sure you've seen this one, right? Where halfway through the game, one of the players just gets given like an extraordinary amount of money. And then the game keeps going. And they notice behavioral changes yes. in, in the person that has all the money and is winning. And at the end of the game, they will tell the people running the study that they why they won the game. And the reasons will all be about their ingenuity and their- Oh, yes. Merit. Meritocracy, my <laughs> right, friend. Exactly. Merit. I just played it better. <laughs> and, and you see that unfold among people who, you know, they have a good job. They have a good paycheck and they're using that paycheck to pay their mortgage. And so, you know, they, I got this good job. Yes. I'm paying my- my mortgage, this is a meritocracy. And they just don't worry about the fact, like you said, that their parents are the ones that put down the $200,000 cash for their down payment. Yes. And they may not have a mortgage because that may be grandma's mm -hmm. house. And when grandma right. died, grandma left it to them. <laughs> right. Right. So now that Trump and Paul Ryan rewrote this tax code, Democrats are likely to take another look at it. I hope so. Um, through reconciliation this term or next. So what would you advise them to do to solve some of these uh, racial inequities in the, in yes. the tax code? Like what, if you, if you could do five Ooh, things. Okay, let's go. One, individual filing, no more joint returns. W what would that mean for people who are currently doing the, a joint return? It would mean whenever we went to individual filing, if a stay-at-home spouse, well, a stay-at-home spouse wouldn't file a tax return because they don't have any income, but their mm -hmm. working spouse would file an individual tax return. So it would basically mean, like we did in 1913, every taxpayer would be responsible for their own taxes. There's no joint filing anymore. And... I would be taxed on my income and my deductions. Now, could you do this and keep the typical Democratic promise that they won't raise taxes on anybody making more than either 250000 or 400000 you know, depending on who the politician is? So your first question was, how would you recommend mm -hmm. Democrats deal with the racial disparities in the tax code? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I started with one. <laughs> and then you switched up on me and said, yeah, but would you right. let them? And I'm like, I'm not going to talk about that. The reason I'm not going to talk about it, and of course, I'll talk to you about it, Ryan. But the reason I don't want to <laughs> talk about it is I want to talk about what tax changes would need to be made to to eliminate some of the racial disparities in the code. And what I would say to the Biden administration is if you really care about that racial equity executive order you signed, then you need to take this seriously. And if I give you suggestions, you can't say, but I can't raise taxes on blah, blah, blah. Well, figure out a way right. to do it. That would be my response. Mm -hmm. So I would say, you know, Canada has had individual filing for 100 years. We could do it. <laughs> right. Okay. So okay. number one, no more joint return. Number two. Right. Number two, no subsidies for home ownership. Gone. Bye-bye. No tax-free <laughs> gain. No mortgage interest deduction. Gone. The, the home ownership market right. is, is racist and the government needs to be out of it. Yep. Number three, tax not-for-profit billion-dollar colleges and universities tax their endowments much more than the excise tax does 
to increase Pell Grant funding. Mm-hmm. Number four, require employers to publish race-based statistics on their workforce in exchange for a deduction for reasonable salaries. And five, include wealth-building gifts and inheritances into taxable income. So back on number three with colleges. Yes. What type of tax on endowments would you need to fully fund, um, say, free public college across the country? That's a question I can't answer because I haven't done the math. Mm -hmm. Um, But I will tell you there is a lot of money to be (laughs) raised from taxing billion-dollar endowments. And I will say this. I think in my book, I say any institution with $750 million or higher in an endowment should be taxed. And we could have it progressive. We could have it a sliding Mm -hmm. scale such that Harvard and Stanford pay higher than a billion-dollar endowed school. But there's plenty of money there to increase Pell Grants. And why did I pick Pell Grants? Because Pell Grants disproportionately benefit Black Americans. Mm -hmm. So I was very intentional. One, I'm raising it on wealthy white institutions, and I'm using it to pay for Black college students. One of the things you hear about the wealth gap a lot in conversations is is the role that billionaires play in driving the Black-white wealth gap. What can be said accurately about that data? You see sweeping claims that say, well, if you just eliminated billionaires, you'd eliminate a huge portion of the black-white wealth gap. You know, how, how, how sweeping a claim can people legitimately make there? I think there are two different things. There is a point of view that says we shouldn't have billionaires and therefore we should tax them away. (laughs) And there's also the claim that says billionaires are putting their thumb on the scale with their philanthropy of engaging in behavior that may be harmful to society. And then there are those that talk about the wealth tax, right? We should have a wealth tax for billionaires, um, like Senator Warren's proposal. So, you know, I think you can come at it from any Mm -hmm. number of perspectives. Where I come at it is I don't believe you should tax billionaires out of existence. I want billionaires because I want them to pay taxes (laughs) that I can then use to fund um, Pell Grants and other things. But to your other question, you know, how would that help the wealth gap? You have to ask, where is the money you've just raised going to go? If you were to take all the money that we raised from this hypothetical wealth tax and said, we're going to give it to every black American. Well, first of all, somebody's going to sue you. And they're going to win because this Supreme Court is not (laughs) going to find that constitutional. Mm -hmm. But what I propose in my book is you could give a wealth credit. You could give a credit based on low wealth that transcends race and should easily pass the Supreme Court muster. And I guess the flip side of that argument that eliminating billionaires does a lot to shrink the black-white wealth gap is not that it would necessarily make any black people at the bottom better off, but there are also so many white yes. people who are poor yes. that, yes. you know, you're, you're comparing two people who are broke and then there's no gap between that, which I guess you could uh, celebrate as equity, but not as a decent society. Yeah. And, what, you know, what you also have to think about is if we were to give X 
hundreds of thousands of dollars to every black person, hypothetically. They would be using it in an anti-black system. Mm -hmm. So they would use it to buy a home. Oh, okay. Well, we know what that's going to do, right? So to me, before we talk about fixing the racial wealth gap, we have to talk about the system in America for producing wealth that is built-in anti-Black bias. Until we do that, you would just be throwing money, you know, opening the window and throwing it out. Right, exactly. Well, Dorothy Brown, thank you so much for joining us on Deconstructed. Thank you so much for having me. That was Dorothy Brown, and that's our show. Now, we don't often do straight-up author interviews, and we'd love your feedback on whether you'd like more of that. Email us at podcasts at theintercept.com or ryan.grim at theintercept.com. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief, and I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. Thanks so much. See you next week. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.